Ne me quitte pas Il faut oublier tout Peut s'oublier Qui s'enfuit déjà Oublier le temps Des malentendus Et le temps perdu À savoir comment Oublier ces heures Qui tuaient parfois À coups de Pourquoi le cœur du bonheur Ne me quitte pas, ne me quitte pas Ne me quitte pas, ne me quitte pas Moi, Why don't you describe how you felt When we were sitting in the pub And the final whistle had been blown And all of those creations run onto the pitch Well, I think I felt for a long time during that game there was just this feeling of hope slowly slipping away. And, but then I didn't quite want to believe it when, when the final whistle blew. And I sort of thought, well, no, this can't be true because we've bigged this up so much in England. I mean, we were talking about how football's coming home. We're going to finally get to the final. It felt like they had just ruined our fun. Just like, we are owed this. And I know that makes, makes me sound so entitled, but they deserved it this year. They played so well. They deserved it, but really sadly, I don't think we as a nation deserved it. One of the things that I want us to talk about is how Southgate's team has really shifted, hopefully for a long time, shifted the way English people view our national team. But we didn't give them anything of what they deserved until their second group match. Like, Mm. we did not send them off in a way befitting what they gave us over the tournament. So, like, remember us? I mean, remember me sitting here slagging them off because you can't trust an England team because England, the English team is shit. It's just a collection of terrible dog-faced players <laughs> who are so into their own egos and they're all slime balls and they're all divas and they don't play well together. And then we were talking about how whoever it was had polled the country saying they thought England had a 4% chance of Mm. winning. I think the team's standing was really in the gutter. Mm. And obviously everything needs to be proven before you can feel a certain way. But I think we were lucky to get as much joy from them as we did. I don't even think we deserved that much because they just did a completely selfless thing in what they did for the nation. You see, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's their job. Like, I think... You know, yes, it was lovely and everything, but they weren't doing it out of, you know, a total sense of of altruism and just being like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we got to do this for the country? I'm sure they did think that, but it's not why they went to Russia. I mean, they were happy to be picked for the national team. Oh, no, I completely, I completely agree. And I do think I'm like misspeaking quite dangerously. But what I, what I mean is like, don't laugh, like, (laughs) like karmically Ah. in like, like in terms of what we deserved as determined by the fates. Mm Mm-hmm. So I don't necessarily think that England, the nation, deserved good English football, the concept. Right, okay. (laughs) I've turned into, like, the soothsayer of the English team. It's taken me a hot week and a half to turn from a rampant Belgium supporter to Tommy Robinson in a denim miniskirt. (laughs) 
I mean, that is like a great segue into the changes that have been made. Mm. How everyone really got behind the entire team in a way that felt super sincere. Because like, I'm sure at every World Cup, at every Euro, they're always talking about like, our boys, our lads, blah, 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 when they talked about, you know, Wayne Rooney, when they talked about Jack Wilshire. They were probably using the same language, but either I didn't notice it or it is much more profound and emotional with this team because they're all so young, because of what we know about the psychological impact that Gareth Southgate has had Mm. on the team and the changing of the entire ethos does make you feel really tender, really supportive because suddenly the narrative that's coming out of the camp isn't this, and football is not a particularly mask sport. I mean, it's almost kind of part of the reason why I think they're always fucking around, just to prove that they have testosterone. It's not like a traditionally mask sport. But the narrative wasn't this very mask, oh, train hard, like, oh, gotta, you know, do an ice bath, whatever. Everything you heard was just another, like, oh, and then we sat and talked over our performance in a way where, for example, I've forgotten what match it was after, maybe the 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 final 16 match mm. where they sat and talked about their victory until like 6am talked about their good points were told to bring up all of the things they were proud of that they were proud of their teammates for doing in its small way everything that came out about self-belief as a team was so radical do you think that this has just been missing from English football or do you think that other teams I mean do you think other teams do that I think other teams maybe have different legacies to work from mm. so and and I really don't know the answer I look at a team that plays well together like Belgium or like Japan and I would like to imagine that it's a similar sort of thing that makes them play well because I can imagine it does make you play well to feel supported to feel part of a team to take pride in being part of a team but perhaps it comes from a different place perhaps maybe being a French player being so close to really recent victory and frequently close to victory that gives you a different ethos and a different reason to play well together or Mm. perhaps different players and the skills of different players mean you don't have to play in such a teamsmanly like way I don't think that shit's happening in Portugal I don't think that shit's happening in Argentina I think they're just sitting there fluffing exactly I mean they know who's the star over there but I I do think with England there was a certain amount of earning the country's trust back this time because I mean we know that this group of young men who were chosen by Southgate particularly for their youth and their inexperience often it felt like such a break from the old guard who was sort of prima donna like and would kind of crash out of the tournament having played like three matches and done terribly I think it really it felt like this time they had tried really really hard to earn the trust back and the fact that English people by and large I don't think get overly emotional about things or like overly patriotic about things but one of the things that's come out of this summer has been such a nice uniting thing in the country or at least I mean I've obviously only felt it in London that it's kind of everyone's been going around being like football's coming home and and even though we know it's not it actually kind of is because they have brought back a love of national football because it now feels 
like we actually have a chance again. It's always quite dispiriting when you go into a tournament thinking, well, we don't actually ha even have a chance. And going forward, I think, I think we will always be like, well, it'll be hard, but at least we now have a chance. I think so much of that, and like for the first part, I think in terms of earning trust back, I think that was absolutely Gareth Southgate's job. Mm. I don't think that necessarily should have been put on the shoulders of the players, mm. whether it was or wasn't, but Gareth Southgate, he knew that was part of his job. Yeah. And so he did it, and it shows how important a manager is, because like we were saying, you can coach a team and drill them with formations and passes and different plays and whatever, and then they get on the field and they they look like a mess and yeah. there's no diamond and there's no 442 and there's no and you can't see it and you know x is standing in the way of y players so so they can't do that perfect pass that they practice like it all falls to shit so when you watch a football match it's so rare that you can see a manager's hand in it but he's made me believe in in managers and mm. about the patriotism thing i mean that was really the best part of it all like to go on twitter and see that Patriotism wasn't just for the St George's Cross and P word chant brigade. Patriotism and support for the England team was being felt by every English person, black, white, mixed race. There's this article I read, well, unfortunately, I read it on Thursday. It was published on the day in the New York Times and it is by a British writer called Musa Okwonga and it's called This is the England I Want to Win the World Cup. And so Okwonga, he basically talks about the complicated relationship that he has with England, with nationalism, with the St George's Cross in particular, and how when he would see it in pub windows in London, he would always quicken his step, and it's just part of his growing up as a black man, and seeing it as a racist symbol. Mm -hmm. But then he talks about the fact that this team is so young and diverse, and that Gareth Southgate is so emphatic about them being young and diverse mm -hmm. and representative, and how important that is for the team. And it with this paragraph that made me, I mean, it's a lot. Okay, so it starts off, I want Southgate's England to win. That's the one I'm cheering for. The last time Britain was so united during the 2012 Olympics was followed by years of austerity, which eventually led to the toxic climate that resulted in the Brexit referendum. I'm cautiously optimistic that this World Cup bliss isn't another fall storm. An English friend told me that he'd never seen the country connect with the team like it has with this one. Another friend posted a thread that went viral on Twitter with a message I can get behind. Englishness isn't just for people with white skin, it's for everyone. That's good enough for me and a future I want to believe in. And frankly, if England can make it to a World Cup semi-final, anything is possible. Oh. And yeah, it's just, <laughs> football is so stupid. <laughs> But if it can make yeah. you feel like that, what's the harm in it? Mm. How is this not something to be lauded? And I want it to continue and for us to always feel this way about football and even to be corny. It would be nice to always feel that way about your fellow Englishman. Exactly, and not always feel embarrassed. Because, you know, sometimes it's embarrassing to be English or to be associated with the people who think it's a good thing to be English. But now it feels like it is a good thing. It will go back and the legacy of like, racism and far-right nationalism isn't just... I don't want mm. it to go back, but, but it's special and I mm. think... We need 
for it to be remembered and yeah. treasured like a like a waving open flame. Absolutely. Cupped hands Cupped around hands, it. Protecting it and not so, you know, obviously there was a, there's been a six year gap since London 2012 and maybe if the Brexit referendum had happened this August as opposed to two years ago last June, it might be different, but we'll never know. We'll never know. We'll never know. to 110% a World Cup podcast. I'm Livy and I'm Tamara. This is the podcast that is 50% Southgate love, 30% Deli Alley love, 20% Harry Kane love and 10% Loftus Cheek love. Although actually I think maybe more than 10% Loftus Cheek love. I mean I for one am really excited for the Chelsea season to start. <gasps> another sad thing to talk about I had hoped because how sweet would it have been if first episode we declare Belgium England how sweet I mean it would have been heart-wrenching and you know I would have broke my allegiance or I would have been like super conflicted but it would have been really nice if it had either been a Belgium England final or if the podcast had had at least one team Mm. to back in the final but Belgium are out. Belgium will meet England instead for the third place playoff tomorrow, which will be two teams Ooh. trying to be as dignified as possible whilst not crying. Oh. It'll be tough and Belgium probably will take the time to defeat England, which is kind of annoying as well. Yeah. I'm happy for the player who my mother calls Mbappe. <laughs> I'm happy for France that enough Chelsea players. Kante, probably the best player of this World Cup. You weirdly don't like Giroud, which I take quite personally. I don't like Giroud. Why don't you like Giroud? I think he has an attitude problem. I also He's think... He's French! I... <laughs> They've all got an attitude problem. Are you insane? <laughs> I think he's arrogant. I think he's out for what he can get and he's a lone wolf who only cares about him scoring. He didn't do any assists then in that game. All he did was just charge up the pitch and attempt to <laughs> score and fail. This is what I was waiting for. This, I think, is what the podcast has been waiting for. I need you to do one of those um, little fact files, as it were, on almost every player in the final so that we can just play them as our next episode. The entirety of our next episode is just you giving conjecture about... (laughs) I mean, he's a Chelsea man. I'm going to defend him. It wouldn't be the first time a Chelsea man has been accused of having an attitude. Good hair. You see, that's also another thing I can't stand. His hair. His hair. It's awful. I like him because he has acne scars. Oh. And I think there's something really tender about an acne scar. So, Liv, what are we going to talk about today? We are going to talk about um, fan culture in the World Cup and in the UK and their ways of expressing their joy. But mostly we're going to have a very good time, I think, because I can't tell you how depressed we've been about England going out and about, in general, this being our penultimate podcast and about the World Cup being over. So I think this is quite a good opportunity for us to enliven ourselves with some of the lighter aspects of the beautiful game. And to get started, after this week of woe, Um, We're going to play a game. Oh, amazing. A lovely game, which has the catchy title, 
is this a film about football or did I just make it up? <laughs> the first is Harry the Footballer. I'll give you, should I give you a little, um, Synop- I've done synopsis. I am blown away. Your dissertation must be going <laughs> so badly. <laughs> So, it's a silent film. A football star is kidnapped by the opposition and then he's saved by his girlfriend who gets him to the match to score the winning goal. And spoiler alert, his name is Harry. Okay, okay. What year was this made? 1911. 1911. 1911. It's showing a little too much female autonomy for me to believe it. But, you know what? I can almost picture Harry, the footballer, in a striped shirt with a moustache. I think it's real. You are correct! Yes! And, after reading this, we should rent it. I mean, not that anyone goes to Blockbuster anymore, but we should get the film somehow. You're so up to date on the latest (laughs) technological trends. Thank you for letting me know about Blockbuster, by the way. You're welcome. It's quite sad. Um, (laughs) Next one is Soccer dog. Championship chow. <laughs> Championship chow. So this is a sequel to Soccer Dog the movie, which sees an orphaned pup be taken in by a lovely family and they suddenly realise that it is actually quite good at football when it's playing outside with the younger son who's a little bit shy but who loves football. The waterworks have turned on, guys. It's the dad, Gareth Southgate. It's the dad's Gareth Southgate. I'll never recover. In this, which is the sequel, the little chow take part in the Premier League. You blew it. I'm going to say, unfortunately, maybe Soccer Dog 1 is real. It is! But Soccer Dog Championship Chow, which is a misnomer. If you know anything about the league system in the UK, you'll know that the championship is below the Premier League. I should have gone for Premiership Pooch. That's what I should have done. Oh my God. Premiership Pooch is like, I know what it is. It's the name of a dog grooming salon run by wags they've got a reality show it's on ITVB more 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 this is the best game I've ever played is coup de tete now this film as you might have guessed it's a French film now um, Monsieur Perrin who used to play for his village football team they were sort of part of like quite a bad league wait I think I've seen this film has it got Gérard Depardieu in it well you might it might not actually be a real film (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait to look a complete it. <laughs> Monsieur Perrin is wrongly imprisoned for rape and kicked off his team. Only oh God. to be brought back when one of the best players is injured. So even though he was wrongly accused of rape, the football team doesn't know this and still invites him back to play for them when they have no other option. Well, it's not a great Me Too film, is it? New and actually a bit of a twist. The person person who actually was responsible for the rape is the old captain of the team who Perrin was fighting against. No, this is a dream you had one. Perrin afterwards helps to bring him to justice whilst also scoring, of course, the winning goal. This is made up because if footballers like one thing it's solidarity with rapists so there will be no bringing to justice of anyone well tomorrow I have to tell you 
Coup de Tête is a real film. It's a genuine film. It was made in 1979. Not oh, the best there we year go. for female emancipation. Okay, I'm going to do one more. Oh, no. I want the rest of the programme to be just this. <laughs> Excellent. This is so... I could go on for hours. This is so good. So the last film I have is called Oh what? Now, friends of the podcast will know that this we'll is know. your favourite word, so you've made it up. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we'll know that Oshwat forms a part of a famous French phrase that they shout at the referee. Oshwat l'arbitre, meaning to the loo with the ref. Um, now, this film, it's quite dark. It's set in the banlieue of Paris. And it's about a dodgy ref who is a kind of closet supporter of the Front National. And there's a sort of big team that is mainly made up of French Algerians, French North Africans. Oh my God, I would die to watch this fake film. (laughs) Who are living in this banlieue. And he basically has it in for this team, especially the captain, because the captain is dating his daughter. (gasps) Oh my God, this film is amazing. And so it all comes to a head. They have a match against another team in Paris who are slightly more well-off. They're a mainly white team and he obviously is siding with them. And by halftime, you know, there have been so many fouls against them. There have been so many penalties. It's awful. They're really thinking that it's going to end badly, but it doesn't. It doesn't. Nothing is going to bring me more sadness than these words. You made this up. I did make it up. And it is the best film i want to i want to steal it i want you to write it if anyone listening could maybe do the work for us write it produce it kareem benzema cameo oh my god he should be in it but i slightly trailed off at the end i haven't worked out the ending yet we need to work on an ending because i was like i think i've guessed an ending from the rest of yours and he scores the winning goal oh which is a popular motif in films such as goal which is very good which you didn't mention i didn't mention because i thought you might have known it probably in soccer dog have the same thing yeah they do especially in soccer dog the championship chow Do you think people think highly of football fans? Increasingly more so. Who is thinking highly of football fans? Well, I think it's gotten better because we haven't seen hideous displays of lunacy this World Cup. I mean, there have been some, there have been apparently some dodgy chants, which are not great. It's because Nazism is so hot right now. Do you think the perception of football has changed? I mean, maybe not even in the last World Cup, but in sort of the previous leagues or 10 years or something. I think it's really interesting because I think people who aren't into football are very disquieted by the tribalism involved in football Mm -hmm. and it does seem like super archaic and super open to mockery and so then you see something like a World Cup and it's really nice because everyone is suddenly interested in football and like I have felt so great because Mm. suddenly I go around and I can just be like oh what do you think of X or Y something that I was a little bit interested in before and everyone will want to watch a match or want to talk about it or whatever and that's really fun and probably great for our listener numbers 
Absolutely. But at the same time, it's such a transient thing. Mm. And I like it. I think it's good. As many people should be as interested or as uninterested in as many different things for as many different reasons as possible. Why not just like something and just not be a dick about it? So I don't care if you weren't a football fan before and suddenly you're watching the World Cup. Great. There are loads of people who do care. And I'm like, you didn't even like football until England were in the World Cup. Well, I didn't have a reason to like football until England were in the World Cup, mm. you know? like. And if everyone's talking about football, it's fun to be involved in a group thing. Exactly. And so it does change around the World Cup. And I think it allows itself to be more fluid. I think that the more diehard year-on-year fans kind of have a problem with that and they do kind of look down on the fair-weather fan. But what's interesting is when the split occurs across genders, it's so... I was thinking about this on the tube the other day. It's like women need to harness the power that men have of using football as an excuse when they don't even like football that much. (laughs) So like... If a man doesn't want to do anything, he can just invoke the cultural connotation of being a man and liking football. Mm. He doesn't care about Leicester Huddersfield Town. He just wants to leave the room. But he has a convenient excuse. And sure, we have our cultural codes and can excuse ourselves for a room over something, I'm sure, delicate and feminine. (laughs) But my God, am I going to start actively leaving things so that I can go and quote-unquote watch the football? Because I know that's what men are doing. Most men come into contact with football despite not being particularly (laughs) interested in it. It's just this, like, bonding mechanism for the casual fan who wants to meet up with a friend but doesn't want to make it cheesy doesn't want to make it too intimate by just suggesting they go talk no there's this like construct of the football match that neither one of them really cares about so as a result men have a lot of like secondary knowledge of football of the Mm. boring parts of football we're interested in the fun parts of football and the drama and knowing about the players and they're just like oh but you don't know the score of this random match that happened I feel I'm always being told why don't you know where X is in the Premier League I don't care I care where Chelsea is Yeah. but men have all of this like background noise knowledge from running away from groups of people and their responsibilities I guess (laughs) (laughs) That was truly excellent. Tomara one, misogyny zero. On that topic, I think being a female fan is harder. Like we were saying last episode about the Andy Gray and Richard Keyes thing, Mm. it's like a constant knowledge test. And if you're a female fan, you're either a fair weather fan who, oh, your boyfriend must be so into football and you've just picked up this knowledge. Your knowledge never gets to come from this pure place. Mm. It must be touched by manliness, which yeah. is, ugh. And then everything you do is going to look like graft. Yeah. Which it's, isn't chill. There's always that question that's like, oh you actually know anything about it and it's like well why would you ask a man that if he's if he had to say i'm interested in football men would never have to say that we could do a whole podcast about those background noise opinions that men get about football when they find themselves talking about so and so's feet and they have no idea what they're talking about they just they heard it from some guy who heard it from some guy who heard it through a window someone was listening to talk sports in a van and they heard it or someone saw something funny on Twitter 
and then they read it wrong and then they told someone else and then suddenly everyone knows that Harry Maguire has a bad left kick or whatever. (laughs) You could write a Rupee Kaur style poem of all of the crap opinions that just soak into men like old bread. (laughs) I think this reminds me of the other time we did a podcast and I was drinking. (laughs) Speaking of poetry... You remember when you tasked me to write... I thought you'd forgotten a oh limerick. Oh my god. Well, so I have got the first two lines. <laughs> wait, wait. So I cut Give this... Sec- for some context, I did cut this out of an episode because I thought she would never do it. I tasked Livy with writing a poem to describe her feelings about Harry Kane. What I asked for was actually a longer epic poem in couplets. She tried to offer me a haiku. I don't know how you could convey any feeling for Harry Kane, which is nothing if not visceral and all-consuming, in a haiku. So she said she would do a limerick, and I guess we're about to hear it now. An ode to Harry Kane. There was a young man called Harry, whom Olivia said she'd marry. He said, oh God, no, went off to steal the show. In Russia, Olivia did not tarry. (laughs) Okay, I'm just going to put my English degree hat on. You bastard! It's a little garbled at the end, but the sentiment comes across quite nicely. What about didn't tarry? Does that work? In Russia, Olivia didn't tarry. No, it doesn't. You're not in Russia. No, Or is there a comma? You're not in Russia. You're in my basement. No, as in, like, I went to Russia to ask him to marry me. I have no idea how you managed to write a poem about Harry Kane and you didn't use the word main. Can I tell you how many things rhyme with cane compared to Harry? Literal lions on the shirt. Literal lions main. Oh, Harry cane. from the poem which I think was charming uh, we thought we'd talk about chants because they are such an integral part of the footballing experience and actually going to the stadium some of them are quite light-hearted so you've got to the tune of La Donna e Mobile so In reference to their famous player, Fabrizio Ravanelli, Derby County sing, We've got Fabrizio, you've got Farcolio. <laughs> Which I adore. And actually, in 2004 and 5, Barclay Card actually paid someone £10,000 to be chant laureate for the year and go on tour with the Premier League and record all of the chants and make up new ones. That is the most bullshit job. (laughs) We could do that. We could do this. Mr. Johnny Hurst, if you're listening, please come on our podcast. Chelsea have a famous chant have you ever sung carefree at chelsea to the tune of lord of the dance do we should give you yeah i want to hear it give you some lyrics it goes the best thing i've ever heard at chelsea is someone standing up and saying what's he got to do to get a card ref knife him (laughs) (laughs) carefree wherever you may be we are the famous cfc and we don't give a fuck wherever you may be (laughs) Because we are the famous CFC. 
So this um, this chant, which is also Chelsea, this is because back in the day, it was apparently the go-to for if your team was in the FA Cup final, mm-hmm. you would record a song. <gasps> so They should do that now. Yeah. Oh so, my God, that's amazing. It's called Blue Day. And in 1997, courtesy of Suggs and Co., it's, it sort of reads like a poem. I'm, in fact, I'm going to read it like, the only place to be every other Saturday Saturday is strolling down the Fulham Road. Meet your mates and have a drink. Have a moan and start to think. Will there ever be a blue tomorrow? We've waited so long, but we'd wait forever. Our blood is blue and we would leave you never. And when we make it, it'll be together. Chelsea, 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 Chelsea. We're going to make this a blue day. Chelsea, 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 (laughs) Chelsea. We're going to make this a blue day. Chelsea, 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 Chelsea. Maybe we'll just, this will be a Chelsea book. I've come to be quite fond of the blue team. So I've got a question for you. Mm -hmm. Which English football team has the song Delilah by Tom Jones as their team song? Will it be a team close to Wales or is that irrelevant? (laughs) Millwall? (laughs) (laughs) That club known for the soft touch of Tom Jones. It's Stoke. Smile Without You by Barry Manilow. What? There's an English team that sings Barry Manilow every Sunday and Wednesday evening. Apparently. What could it be? It's your rivals. Tottenham goes out to Barry Manilow. They should have something Adele. Okay, one last one for you. This song is called I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles. I know who does I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles. Do you? Yeah, it's really famous. Oh my god, who who does it then? No, the problem is I do know it. Mm. It's so famous, I'm gonna kick myself. I'm gonna kick myself. Is it? It's West Ham. Oh, for fuck. <laughs> last one we can discuss is it's called one nil to arsenal it's all to do with the fact that they had a very defensive way of playing they would often sing it but then also people in the opposite stands would sing it ironically to kind of make fun of arsenal for the fact that they played very defensive football in the sort of same style as iceland and not particularly interesting football so yeah it does sort of you can have your own chance turned on their heads 
it's against you. Oh, that used to happen all the time at Chelsea after Mourinho left because he was the special one and that was such a big deal for us musically, I guess. Do you, uh, would you say it was musically to refer musically, to Charles? definitely, I think so. Culturally. <sighs> Oratorially. Oh. He was very important to us in terms of our songs and they would absolutely turn that on its head and it's so satisfying when you do latch on to a particular insecurity mm. as evidented on the pitch that somehow con- is contradicted by the chant and yeah I mean it's just it is sort of the ultimate mark of a football fan being swept up in a chant something that is so collective and significant Mm. and historic is so involving and it's such an easy way to identify I think it's kind of strange and sad in the World Cup where you get countries that do have individual chants Mm-hmm. So, like, is coming home versus Allez Le Bleu versus, like, the Iceland clap. When other fans use the Iceland clap, it's sort of... It's strange because you've come to identify it with this particular team. Yeah. And it just feels a bit, I don't know, cheap and Vuvuzela-like if someone else is using it. Yeah. Because it's so much fun to hear the different, the different chants on a more, like, national level. It kind of bums me out when we go to Chelsea and it's does seem quieter and more reserved. The fact that Chelsea is lots of diehard supporters, of course, but it's like business and so many families and Mm. business people and go and watch Chelsea and we'll clap and we'll cheer and whatever, but they're not going to do the chance. And you sometimes, when it's quiet in the stands, you get so disappointed at how disheartened the players must feel. Mm. That's why I'm so envious of what it must have been like in watching the World Cup and watching England play. Yeah. Even though there was only one band and they only knew how to play um, the beginning of Earth, Wind and Fire, September. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. (laughs) Oh my god, really? I heard commentators call it something else, but in my mind, it's Earth, Wind, yeah, Fire, September. September. I mean, the thing I heard a lot during England games was just, it was nice to hear the national anthem. And you, it was... You are so corny. I just, it was so, oh, it was, it was so nice. If we could hear it sort of through the microphones, then it must have been such a, an amazing thing for the players to hear as well. But that is if you identify with your national anthem. I completely agree. But mm. so many players, like on the French team, you'll see particular players at different points in their Not career seen. and in different points. In France, is pretty turbulent yeah. societal and political of recent history. You'll see players specifically not singing yeah and so especially for the for the french national anthem just because it is so bloodthirsty yeah and i mean it's great but if you listen to the words then you're oh just my god like it's filth lost in a mire of like bones being hacked up by exactly like foreign legion members yeah on the subject of chants, FIFA is investigating the Football Association um, for misuse of chants during the Croatia map. Um, so it relates to them singing No Surrender, which has historically been a chant sung at England versus Republic of Ireland games. 
because the lyrics go, With St George in my heart, keep me English. With St George in my heart, I pray. With St George in my heart, keep me English. Keep me English till my dying day. No surrender, no surrender, no surrender to the IRA scum. <laughs> oh God, I choked on my face. And also, um, as we were talking about singing God Save the Queen, occasionally English fans will squeeze in the words no surrender before the line send her victorious. That's so weird. So no surrender has basically become a byword for ultra English nationalism. Yeah. I mean, it's the sort of Brexit mentality where you think the world is against you and it's no surrender as if we're not the one who are more often than not exerting our force on others rather than acting as this tiny oppressed nation. Exactly. So the no surrender myth is actually a huge part mm. of English nationalism and it's a shame. Yeah, it does slightly mar, you know, that World Cup experience, the thought of some fans kind of having that. But maybe they didn't even think about it. Mm. Maybe they didn't think about the connotations with the EDL or... But you wouldn't sing it. Because you wouldn't know about it. You wouldn't know to sing it. We will be back for our last episode to be recorded directly after Sunday's final when I'm sure there will be tears, cheers... Maybe I'll count up how much money I bet over the tournament. There will also be the first inaugural 110% awards. So tune in to find out if any of your favourite teams, players or events got a pick to win one of our coveted 110% trophies. In the meantime, enjoy the third place playoffs. And remember that we do love you, our listeners. Thank you. La donna è mobile, qual fiume al vento, muta d'accento e di pensiero. Sempre una labile, leggiadro viso, il fiato e il riso, e menzognero. La donna è mobile, qual fiume al vento, Yeah.